are listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm your host, Mike Gaston. I'm a brand and marketing strategist, and this podcast is all about the power of private business in America. Thanks for joining me today. My guest is Ken Wozniak, and he is the president and CEO of a company called Harris Seeds. Harris Seeds with many, many years of history. This is a heritage brand. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, but Ken, welcome to The Currency. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. I appreciate you joining me and uh, being willing to spend a little bit of time. I know that um, you're busy, and I know that you're busy. Every CEO and owner is busy, but I know that you're busy because you are in the midst of a transformation in this business, and we'll talk about that a little bit, maybe your uh, approach to to becoming a growth company and transformation. Before we do that, tell us a little bit about uh, Harris Seeds. What is it? What do you guys do? Uh, yeah, actually, um, Hair Seeds is, is part of Garden Trends, which is uh, the actual company that um, is the you know is the umbrella company. And under uh, Garden Trends, we have Hair Seeds, uh, Garden Trend, GardenTrends.com uh, itself, and uh, and another company called Kenbar. Hair uh, Seeds is uh, provides seeds and ag- agricultural products to farmers and professional growers. Uh, Garden Trends is really uh, a, a brand that's really targeting more home gardeners and hobbyists. Um, and that could be, you know, home gardeners that have a, you know, a 10 by 10 garden behind their house, or they could have a patio garden, or in some cases, even, you know, growing seeds inside their house or plants and growing plants inside their house. Um, and then Kenbar actually uh, manufactures products for uh, greenhouses and, and okay. high tunnels. Okay. So we've got, uh, you know, three different brands really kind of targeting three different uh, market segments. Okay, but anybody that's anybody that's growing something from a seed in the ground, it sounds like you're doing business with them in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, we do. We tend to focus on um, on fresh produce, okay. or what we refer to as fresh market produce, and and flowers. Um, what we don't do is we don't do any of the the field seed or wheat or soybeans and those types of products. So when we're driving down the street and we see these uh, just miles and acres of corn. And I see these little signs in the ground of the different brands. You, you guys aren't in that market. That's, that's not our market segment. Okay. Um, we sell to uh, to the, the growers that are supplying, you know, uh, Wegmans. Okay. Uh, when you go to any of the, you know, any local, um, you know, public market or okay. farmer's market, that's really our bread and butter. And that's who we're, we generally supply okay. to. Very nice. Well, you took me for a tour through the facility and I was blown away by just the... the um, the racks and racks, just the square footage of seeds and in bulk and then obviously packaged individually in uh, packages, but it's pretty impressive. So the thing about Harris that I find interesting, and, and I want to get to your background a little bit too, because I think there's a real interesting marriage here. But the thing about Harris is this is a legacy heritage brand. This company started out when? I mean, the uh, 1800s? Yeah, it's uh, 2019 was our 140th anniversary. <laughs> Congratulations. So it started in 1879. So yeah, the company's been around for, for a very, very long time. And um, and quite frankly, I mean, you know, the kind of the weight of that always is in the back of your mind. You know, you, you realize that you're just, you know, part of a continuum. Yeah. And, you know, and it's a pretty... Uh, you know, it's something that, you know, really does weigh on you and you want to make sure that, you know, you're the best uh, shepherd in, of that brand and, sure. and continuing its its success overall. Well, let's talk about that because often when I sit with a company owner uh, or executive that's been in the business and the company's been around for generations, let's say, it's often a family business. Hey, my great-great-grandfather started this and I bought it for my dad and 
you didn't come in as a family member. You came in from the outside. Now, you started a company years ago called Concentrix. That's correct. Yeah, and a uh, young man in my early 20s. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you built this up. This was a more of a digital database marketing business. Yeah. So, um, started Concentrix in, um, in the early 1990s. Um, you know, and at the time it was really, um, you know, we were, we were trying to build a company that was a company that really put data at the center of marketing. You know, um, a lot of people are probably familiar with the terms like spray and pray and, you know, things that were more <laughs> just generally campaign based. Um, you know, we really tried, you know, uh, creating a company that really focused on and put intrinsic value on data itself. So, you know, obviously any, any touch point with a customer, you know, the, the optimal, uh, outcome would be to create a transaction. But, um, you know, with Concentrics, our focus is really looking at data and putting data at the center so that even if we didn't create a transaction, we, we basically got paid in knowledge. Okay. And, um, and that, that was, at the time, we called it one-to-one marketing. Um, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and ironically, uh, today it's just called marketing. Yeah, that's so, trans- yeah, so, yeah. So you're a little bit ahead of the curve because I think people didn't even realize at the time the value of just acquiring the data. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. a lot of people thought, well... If I don't transact, I have nothing. And you had some insight to say, well, even if we can't transact, ideally we can. But even if we can't, if we can capture data, that's valuable. That has intrinsic worth. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it, that really becomes absolutely critical when you start looking at, you know, um, you know, you know, using analytics and so forth yeah. to ultimately create, you know, customer journeys and things yes. like that and becoming much more targeted, you know, and ultimately, you know, obviously if you're, if you're very proficient at it, it'll help you increase revenues um, sure. by, you know, putting the right offer in front of the right person at the right time and, you know, creating a transaction. Um, but it also is valuable in terms of just reducing your overall Marcom expense, yeah. learning, you know, the types of modalities that, you know, people, both customers and prospects, the way that they're most likely to respond to a particular marketing uh, communication and, um, you know, in eliminating the ones or reducing the ones that are, are ineffective and, you know, I think ultimately the irony of it, even though you're using databasing technology and analytics, it also increase, increases the overall perception of intimacy, you know, with both your customers and your prospects because they feel that you have a, a much better, you know, uh, insight and understanding of their particular needs. Yeah. No, so it's a win, win, win. It's amazing, too. And you, and you said just a moment ago, but that was called one-to-one marketing. Today, we just call that marketing. Yeah. Because yeah. as you're describing, it's like, well, we, you know, you can use analytics, you can get an insight, you can get more efficient at the way and the modes that you use to communicate with people. It creates a sense of intimacy. And as you're saying, that, I'm like, yeah, that's what marketing is today. But that wasn't necessarily the case no, 20 plus I, I years ago. Wasn't. It was yeah. funny because, you know, back in the 90s when we were, you know, Bringing this uh, this approach to the market, and obviously, I don't want to make it like we were the only ones because obviously it was it was a movement at that point. But you know, whenever I would give a talk, or you know, I, in some cases even going out and engaging with prospective customers, and we would you know kind of walk them through the process, and you know, inevitably, I'd always get the the, the pushback that it, it sounds a lot like Big Brother, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. And you know, we used to have to be very careful just about you know um, you know a lot of AGs and so forth were we're really scrutinizing, you know, the direction that marketing was going, which quite frankly is kind of ironic given where we are today. It's nothing, what we were doing back then is nothing in comparison to, you know, what, what we do today. It's amazing. It's a great point because how normalized have we become? I mean, you know, now people are like, hey, hey, Google, hey, Siri. I mean, we can't wait to give marketers our data. I mean, I don't think we realize it, but that, 
that sensitivity to it seems to be gone. Now, of course, there are you know, national discussions around sure. privacy data. But as consumers, we seem to kind of like that level of intimacy. And right. we're willing to give a lot of information to get it. Yeah, you know, and I think it's one of those I things. I find it troubling, by the way, but. <laughs> it, you know, it's interesting. I mean, when's the last time you read a, you know, a terms and conditions, uh, you know, from some. Man, I'm I'm clicking them all the time, but I never, yeah, I mean, I never really read look them. At them yeah. you know, and if you really look at them, you, it gives you some pretty good insights <laughs> as to what's really taking place there yeah. and, you know, how they might be leveraging that data. But again, I think, you know, I think it is, um, you know, it's been very evolutionary in nature how this sure. is kind of, sure. you know, developed. But, you know, I also think it's, you know, it's very generational, too. I mean, you have a, a generation of, uh, you know, of, of younger folks that have, have come up through, and this is really all they've known. Right. So, you know, I think they certainly are a bit more desensitized to it um, than, you know, what you had back in the, you know, in the, in the 1990s. So, so that, that brings us to kind of where we are now. So you started Concentrix. Uh, you had an insight. You were able to build a business around that. You were a little bit ahead of the curve. So, you know, it would be easy to assume, well, your next act is going to be a marketing thing. It's going to be a data thing. It's going to be a high technology thing. Jump to today and you're in a company that's a that's a heritage business. It's very, it's agriculturally rooted. Um, it's just interesting for me, what, what attracted you to this opportunity? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. It, it was funny because when I originally, you know, took this position, a lot of you know, long, long time friends and colleagues are like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> you know, you just went from, from, you know, running an ed tech company, um, you know, that was, you know, working with the Pentagon and trying to right. use, you know, uh, dynamic delivery and, you know, prescriptive learning models to, you know, prepare the government against, you know, cyber security threats and so forth. And then, you know, to move over to, to a seed company. But I think at the end of the day, the thing that, you know, I, that really kind of struck me about this company is, 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 you know, we're not really a seed company. At the end of the day, we're, we're a, a sales and, and marketing company. You know, our, our objective is really to um, help our customers succeed. And, you know, we do that by selling products and services that, you know, largely are, are being developed by other companies, sure. you, know, um, you know, breeding companies. So that was a very familiar ground for me. So although, you know, I think a lot of people looked at it as it was a seed and egg company, I really just viewed it as a lens of, you know, it's a it's a sales and marketing company. And it, quite frankly, was in an industry that I think was really um, ripe for disruption and, you know, it was really a laggard. So I, I found that very appealing that you could actually come into an industry, you know, in 2016 and they really weren't using a lot of the, you know, the current methodologies that existed out there that a lot of, you know, other industries have been doing for years, if not decades. So you looked at it through a different lens. I appreciate that a lot. Uh, you, it would be easy maybe for people even working here most of their career It'd be easy for people from the outside looking in to say, well, you guys sell seeds. That's what you do. You sell it to farmers. You sell it to home hobbyists, enthusiasts, et cetera. You looked at it through a different lens and said, no, this is really a marketing, a sales and marketing company. So you, in your point, I'll just kind of blow it out for listeners. You don't have acres of greenhouses out back where you're growing your own seeds. You have, you have folks that are creating that seed stock. And then your job is to understand the market and get those seeds to market in a way that's Efficient and profitable. Yeah, it's an interesting. It's an interesting industry from that perspective. I mean, um, the the industry is really kind of segmented out. You have what's known as breeding companies, and these are the companies that are out there actually, you know, trying to develop the hybrids, and okay. in some cases, 
you know, it could be things that are, um, you know, they're, they might in some cases be GMO-based seeds where they're using okay. genetics sure. to try and, you know, um, uh, increase the overall uh, profitability of, of growers by sure. reducing the amount of spray. Um, but in other cases, it could be that they're they're not using, you know, um, GMO uh, type uh, yeah. of development. Instead, they're they're developing hybrids that might have more natural resistance to different types. Or of like in the flower market, some sure, kind of sure. unique color combination. And it, and that you it, can't and it get. really it really is. It's fascinating in that regard. Like you know, you just brought up the example of flowers. I mean, if you go out to some of the large, like you know, we refer to it as the ornamental side of the business, but you know, you go out to some of the large flower shows and so forth. I mean, you know. It was hard for me not being, you know, coming out of the horticulture industry and kind of following my people around. We'd be, we'd go into an event, and there'd be some petunia there, and you know, <laughs> you know, the, the people that are working like, wow, they're going gaga, wow, yeah, wow, look at that, look at the way it's got just a slightly green edge that's surrounding. Never you know, saw that before. Yeah. I've never seen that before. Wow, that's fantastic. So you know, but but at the end of the day, though, interestingly enough, that does ultimately translate into sales. You know, people want something that's new, something that's different, and you know. People often, I think, in, uh, from the public side, don't truly, you know, understand all the nuance sure. of, of the industry. They're ultimately buying it, and something's being presented to them. But yeah, there's a lot of small little things that that, that change from year to year on both fresh market produce as well as you know in the ornamental side. Yeah. That um, you know people are actually either consuming the product or they're buying it at you know an independent you know a garden store or a big box store that is really the product of, of, of these breeding companies. So that's so the, the whole um, segmentation, and if I'm thinking about your place in that segment, plus your personal background with Concentrics and the business you built, this kind of ties back to this idea of being a marketing and sales company. The more that you can understand the market, and the, you know, the, obviously you've got a connection to the breeders, and there's the experience and generations there. But the more you can understand the market, the more you can be successful in taking those innovations that the breeders are coming up with and right. figuring out ways to uh, to commercialize them or to monetize them. Yeah, that, that's correct. I mean, um, you know, we're, again, at the end of the day, I mean, we're, we're an agent for our customers sure. in terms of, you know, trying to select the, the best products and services that will, you know, help them, you know, be successful and and that comes in, in you know, in, in lots of different forms. I mean, um, in part, success is, you know, first of all, helping them, you know, be able to, to grow a crop yeah. that will actually, you know, produce a, a, a good product yep. at the end. Again, whether that's a, a vegetable or whether that's a, a flower. But, you know, there's lots of different microclimates, different soil types. There's different disease pressures in different parts of the country. So really being able to have a you know, a, a wide breadth and depth of a product mm-hmm. and having the expertise and, you know, and also, you know, increasingly the technical capabilities to, you know, recommend the best product that will, first of all, let them actually, you know, plant the seed, have it come up, yep. have it be a high quality fruit, have it yield, not, you know, have to worry as much about maybe disease pressures and so forth. And then, you know, secondarily, you know, hopefully giving them a product that will differentiate them when they go to, you know, monetize sure. and monetize that crop. How, how does predictive uh, aspects come into this? Are you helping uh, your buyer, the, the agriculturalist, the farmer, et cetera, 
um, predict where the trends are going, let's say in produce or flowers, that type of thing? Or are they coming to you saying, here's what I'm looking for. What do you have? Um, you know, I, I, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I, there's all different types of growers out there, and, and some are, are certainly, you know, more sophisticated than, than others. Um, you know, I think in general, uh, you know, most growers are they're, they're aware of what's out there now. Sure. A lot of them are looking at, you know, what's new. And then, you know, really, what does this product that's new, what does it, you know, what does it do? Um, we do an extensive trialing of any, you know, products that are coming to the market. So, you know, we can, you know, see the product, you know, actually grow in, in different environments in different parts of the country and ultimately, you know, select those products that we can offer to, to growers. Um, but it's for us, it's, um, you know, our, our goal is really to bring uh, of the thousands and thousands of, of new products that are introduced every year by the breeding companies, selecting the ones that we feel are going to help increase the, the outcomes for our customers and, and bringing that to them and explaining to them why we think that might be better yeah. than, than another product they might be using. Yeah, currently. it sounds like a bit of a mix. What, um, how, do you, how do you sell? Do you have um, folks that are out direct sales? Do you have distribution channels? What does that look like? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. I mean, <laughs> um, you know, we're um, we have multi multiple channels here. Um, you know, when I first came to the company, uh, we had an outbound um, you know sales team that was uh, you know basically uh, you know out of a call center mm. where we're actually you know calling in to to growers. Um, uh, we obviously uh, you know prior to that we we have an extensive catalog. Uh, production and, and mailing um, segment of our company. So the general process is that we'll actually develop the catalog, send it out to the, the growers, and then our sales team will start calling on you know on, sure. on, their, on their particular customers. And you know, so besides the actual outbound team, we have a direct sales team that actual road reps that are calling on larger growers. Yeah. Okay. And increasingly, um, we're doing more and more, um, you know, online commerce mm -hmm. uh, via e-commerce and our, and our website. Um, regardless of the type of grower, we've seen a, obviously, a, like most industries, uh, you know, a large um, increase year over year of people moving to e-commerce. Um, when I came in, one of the first things I, I did is we started a marketplace uh, channel in our company. So we sell through Amazon now and have been able to develop a, a you know, a seven figure, you know, revenue channel out of Amazon. Uh, and then we also have a wholesale channel where we actually, okay. you know, re represent a lot of the breeding companies and we actually distribute out to a lot of our competitors mm, as well. So, yeah, it's a, what, know. what is it about Harris seeds that it's set up to sell to competitors? What, what makes you guys unique to do that? Um, well, we actually have a, you know, a division that's a wholesale division that's, you know, pretty well known in the industry. Mm. Um, and, and there's, you know, there's separation. We understand that, you know, um, there's at times some sensitivity, but, but are these competitors smaller like you, you must have relationships that they don't enjoy to be able to to sell through to them. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, there when you look at the at the breeding companies, mm -hmm. they have um, you know dealers of record for different parts of the country. Okay, gotcha. And you know, it's uh, they, they tightly manage you know who their dealers are, and you get to a certain size segment where they're saying, okay, we're not going to distribute to them directly. You know, we'd like to have, you know, uh, somebody that would actually manage that for us. And sure. That's, that's a, a part of our business. Sure, otherwise they're dealing with thousands of accounts. And that's right. That's yeah. not the business yeah. they're in. Gotcha. Exactly. I mean, okay. if you're, you know, a lot of these breeding companies are multi-billion dollar companies. I mean, you know, companies like, uh, you know, uh, 
H.M. Klaus, which owns Harris Moran, okay. which is, you know, our, our kind of part of our lineage. Uh, Syngenta, again, okay. a, a multi-billion dollar company, you know, um, uh, Bayer Monsanto, Ma- Bayer, Bayer, Monsanto yep, yep. another one, they, their actual fresh market produce uh, division is a company called Seminus. So we're, we're actually, you know, a dealer record for all those companies. Okay. Um, but in some cases, for a few of those companies, we actually are also their, their wholesale um, you know, partner that will actually manage the wholesale relationships for a tier of customers that they really don't want to sell directly to. My guest today is Ken Wozniak. He's the president and CEO of Harris Seed Company. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about this concept of turning a legacy heritage brand into a growth company. Ken's got a lot of experience to share with us around that. Uh, but do me a favor. Go check out the company. You can uh, check them out on harrisseeds.com. That's H-A-R-R-I-S-S-E-E-D-S.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. We'll be right back with more with Ken Wozniak. Guys, I hope you're enjoying today's show. I've got to tell you, I really love putting this podcast together. There's something really special about meeting these business owners, hearing their stories, and then getting those stories out to you, the community that makes up the currency. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for helping me make this podcast so successful. Now, look, if you are a business owner and you're trying to scale your business, you're trying to grow, maybe introduce new products, maybe capture new markets, or just capture more share in your existing market, I'd love for you to get in touch. I'd love to help you. You know, I'm a brand and marketing strategist. I help the owners of private businesses transform their marketing from an overhead function, something that costs them money, to a revenue generating machine, something that brings money into the business. Every dollar you spend should generate exponential return. And so I love working with folks that own businesses to help them do that transformation. If that's something you think you could use some help with, let's at least have a discussion. Get in touch. Like I said, my email address is mike at mikegaston.com. You can also go to my website, mikegaston.com. There's a contact form there, but get in touch and let's get a discussion started. Now, guys, let's get back to today's show. And we're back. I'm your host, Mike Gaston. This is The Currency, in case you forgot, over the last 30 minutes. We're talking to Ken Wozniak today. He's the president and CEO of Harris Seeds. And we are going to jump into this discussion around turning a heritage brand into a growth-oriented company. Ken, welcome back. Thank you. So this has been an interesting discussion, and I could talk about the history of the company, I think, for the whole podcast. But you've got this experience on the data side, the marketing side, building a business as an entrepreneur, taking this thing to heights and selling it. You've come into uh, an industry that's different, but I love the lens that you're looking at it through. You're looking at it as a lens of a sales and marketing organization. And it sounds like you want to create more of a growth-oriented company. You didn't come in just to be a caretaker. You want to take Harris to a new place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I say Harris, I'm kind yeah, of using it. You've got three companies. Yeah, but. I mean, I, I really kind of, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, I kind of really view myself as just, you know, um, you know, I, uh, one of the, the CEOs in a continuum of CEOs. I think, you know, really, you know, if I were to look back and say, okay, what, you know, what will I be viewed at in, you know, in this legacy of, sure. of, of, of several successful CEOs over the years is really, you know, somebody that maybe transitioned the company and, you know, brought it into more modern times mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe hopefully gave it a, a competitive advantage that was sustainable well into the future and, you know, allowed it to 
realize growth that, you know, otherwise it, it might not have been able to realize. Sure. Well, it seems to me as you're saying that, that every industry has been going through disruption. You've got the power of digital, kind of get, you get tired of hearing that, but there's disintermediation. There are all these forces happening in the marketplace. And it seems to me that every industry at some point or another is going to experience change. There's going to be a disruptor to come in. And so in these industries that haven't been touched so far, potentially like, like the industry that you're in right now, if you just wait for the change to happen to you, you're, you're too late. So this idea of saying, well, how do I get the company in a place where it's ready for the next kind of wave of the future? How do I make sure it's sustainable for long term? Uh, that's really amazing because you're thinking forward. It's not just about how do I build my legacy, but how do I ensure this thing that I've been given to run continues on. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you, how do you do that? I guess that's my, you know, big question here. Well, I mean, I I think, you know, first and foremost, I mean, you know, as I had had mentioned previously, I think a lot of people looked at and said, you know, why, why are you going into this industry? (laughs) And, you know, as I did, uh, my response was, is really that it's, you know, it's just, uh, it's just a different industry, but, you know, really the, the methodologies are the same. So, uh, you know, I, I really kind of go back to the same playbook that I've always gone to, um, you know, number one, um, you know, I'm a, a big believer that micromanagement is the death of a company. And certainly, you know, I, I don't think it ever works in a company that, you know, when you get to be the, the size of a, of a company like ours, it's very difficult to, you know, micromanage and move. So what that really requires you to do is be very, very honest with yourself. You know, the the myth of, you know, an, uh, an entrepreneur is somebody that wears a lot of different hats. You know, that's absolutely true at, at different stages of the company, certainly when you're bootstrapping a company up through. But, you know, regardless of whatever phase you are, you know, or stage uh, uh, you are within a particular company, I think it's incredibly important to really be completely honest with yourself and say, this is really what my strengths are. Um, this is what I'm very, very good at. And these are things that I'm not very good at. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then really go out and try to find the best talent you possibly can of individuals that are really complementary, you know, complementary to you and, yeah. and, and you know, very uh, symbiotic, you know, whatever your weaknesses are, if you can find somebody that they're just exceptional at that and passionate about that. Sure. And you can kind of bring them into the fold. It, you know, I think that that's really a, a cornerstone of successful companies that are able to, to grow and scale efficiently. It really is a, a team effort. So, that's something that, you know, we focused on very, very early here is just trying to bring in exceptional talent that could allow us to succeed. Um, you know, so that's, that's, a, that's a, you know, I, I think the most important aspect of it. So this idea of uh, identifying strengths and weaknesses within the organization and within individuals in the organization and then creating a bit of an approach or plan to say, how do we, how do we, complement or offset the various strengths and weaknesses that we have. So it's really about talent acquisition. It's about talent acquisition, but, you know, the, the right kind of talent, making sure. sure that the talent that you bring is very symbiotic. It's, uh, I, I noticed as you took me through the, the plant and the facility, and I was surprised by this, a mix of age groups. Now, I shouldn't say that like that's yeah, a yeah. big surprise, but, I, I you know, just the, in my mind, you go, oh, you know, seeds and older company, I would have thought, Got a bunch of guys with gray hair like me, you right, know, right. men and men and women. I say guys is figurative, but I see t- folks in there. I, I see folks that clearly these are MBA grads, young yeah. people running around. I see folks like myself with the gray hair running around and working together quite interestingly. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that we've got a, a great team here and we've been able to really recruit some exceptional talent. 
Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people that might have gone to school uh, for horticulture or, sure. you know, anything that's related to horticulture and agriculture. This is this is a great company for them okay. because we're doing things that a lot of other companies aren't doing. You know, we, you know, we're, we're a, a tech seed company, if you will, in terms of our overall approach. I think that's appealing. But, you know, along with that, I think what really makes it great is we have a lot of you know, industry leaders that have been in the, you know, in this field for, for decades in some cases mm -hmm. and really kind of marrying them up with this, uh, you know, some of the younger talent has really kind of given us the best of both sure. worlds. And I think, you know, has really put us in a position that allows us to succeed where other companies might not be able to. That's uh, insightful. Ken, I want to ask a question because I remember coming up, I'm, I'm in my early 50s, there was this kind of culture in a lot of companies where, hey, you're young. I'm thinking when I'm in my 20s, you know. And sure. I was entrepreneurial, and so I was always frustrated in a job because I felt like I was never given the freedom to do the work I thought I could do. But there was this attitude that, like, you got to pay your dues, you got to kind of get in there and grind, and just someday, maybe 10, 15 years down the road, you might get an opportunity to really show who you are. I think there's something different going on here. I see young people with significant responsibilities. Yeah. And, and I think that's changed. I don't think that your company's unique that way. But, like, what do you do to develop your talent? You bring in a smart young person. Are, are they paying their dues for five, ten years before they have responsibility? No, you know, I, I think I have a – you know, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, companies out there now that are, are trying to obviously, you know, create that very symbiotic, you know, ecosystem of, of both, you know, seasoned – legacy talent in the organization with, you know, very young, sure. uh, or not young necessarily, but just very bright talent, yeah. you know. And, um, you know, I think uh, the one thing that I have a different viewpoint on is, you know, I started my first company when I was in my early 20s, right. you know, uh, Matrix, which became Concentrics. And, you know, by the time I was 27 or 28, you know, we had 100 people working for me, you know. And, and I think, you know, at the time I couldn't afford season talent. So, you know, we accomplished a lot, you know, as just a, you know, a, a bunch of scrappy, yeah. you know, 20-somethings uh, that didn't know any better, right? Yep. And, yep. Um, and we were able to accomplish a lot. And, um, and then, you know, throughout my career, you know, I, at my, my previous company, um, it was a company that was owned by, by Soros, uh, the private equity group. And I got exposed to, you know, their model, which was very similar. They brought in a lot of just very young, bright, exceptional, exceptionally talented people. And, you know, and I worked very closely with a lot of the, the folks at, at uh, the analysts at Soros. So that's one thing that we've done here is, I mean, we'll bring in somebody that's very, very bright. And we'll give them, you know, responsibility over a multi-millions of, you know, multi-million dollar channel. Wow. And day one, they walk in the not, door. Not, I mean, figuratively. We, we have them, you know, we actually, you know, we, we put them and have them, you know, rotate around the company and really start to understand okay. the business. But we do give them a lot of responsibility in very key positions. And, you know, it's worked really well for us. I mean, you know, where we've been able to, um, you know, I think look at the, the world through a different lens mm -hmm. as a result of that. Um, and, and quite frankly, I mean, it's also given us the ability to work harder in some cases. I mean, you know, my experience, um, you know, with millennials, um, despite, you know, a lot of the... They get a bad rap. They get, they get a bad rap is they work exceptionally hard. I mean, they work so hard at times that, you know, one of the things that I really have to always be cognizant of is... 
how late are they here at night? You know, okay. Um, you know, because you know, you obviously want them to have a balanced life. There's, you know, there's been a lot of you don't want them to burn out. There's been a lot of articles of, of late about you know millennials and Gen Z, you know, burning out, and, and and you can see that they 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 work very very hard and they work tirelessly, um, you know. But I think that that's part of the thing when you think about legacy talent is helping them, you know understand when it's time to pump the brakes or, or maybe helping them understand, you know, how they have to de- develop key metrics in their partic- particular area of the company so that you can be more proficient at predicting when, you know, their, their capacity has been reached and, you know, you're going to ultimately get diminishing return on that so you can start layering in yeah. additional resources. Well, the key metrics idea is insightful because, if you're a workaholic and you just you just you just work like you're saying like I've got to make sure these folks are going home at night sometimes. If you give me a metric at least it tells me I won. Then I can at least give myself permission to say okay, let me have a deep breath, let me have a glass of wine and go see my husband or sure, wife sure. and I think that's insightful because otherwise I'm just going to keep working. I don't know what else to do. Right. And you know, you know, once you put them in those positions, they really become integral to the overall success of the company. You're depending so, on them. Yeah, so, a lot of know, responsibility. The, the last thing you want to do is have them, you know, spend, you know, three or four years of your company and just say, I, I can't do it anymore, you know, or I, I can't take it, you know, for my own, you know, uh, for my own sanity. Sure. You know, and my own personal well-being, I, I need to move. So I think that's where it really becomes, you know, that symbiotic relationship between people that have been there, done that. And, you know, really try to help them, you know, create that balance. And at the same time, you know, understand, you know, as a CEO, I mean, we, we're always, um, you know, under under the gun to generate profits for our, shareholder, yeah. for yep. our shareholders. Yep. But, you know, if you look at it more holistically, you know, and you, you kind of stretch out the ROI equation, you realize that, you know, if you put somebody in a position for two or three years, then you got to start all over again. You know, it, it's really diminishing return yeah. For, yeah. for the shareholders as well. So I think it is important to, you know, help them create that balance. Is uh, this approach becoming more common in your business as you're looking out? And what I mean by that is bringing, you know, fresh perspectives, fresh people in and investing a lot in them to develop them. Is that happening across your industry or is that unique I, I, to your I'm organization? Seeing it, I'm seeing it more and more now. And, you know, and I don't know if there's a general rule. I mean, I guess I would look at it, you know, within a, the framework of a, a bell curve. Yep. I mean, you know, you, you certainly have companies that are, are outliers that are, you know, more on the on the front edge of that. Yeah, any you industry, know. sure. But it's also an industry that's very, very mature. Yeah. And as a result, I mean, you're, you're you're just in the three years that I've been here, I've seen a huge turnover, a lot of retirements, a lot of people sure. that are leaving, and you know, you've got yeah. a lot of new people coming in. Um, but I think you know, it, it, I think that's just natural in any any industry. You know, you're going to have those kind of it's healthy actually. You need that turnovers. But for us, I think it's more about the types of people that we're bringing in, and you know, ultimately uh, making them part of our overall success equation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think, you know, with that too, it's, we're always uh, really focusing not so much on the strategy of, you know, how we're going to succeed from a strategic standpoint. You know, this is, this is kind of our MO. This is what we're, you know, what we want to do from a tactical standpoint. Um, but, you know, if you see this. Uh, I was just going to mention yeah. that. So just so, for our listeners, we're in Ken's office. I'll yeah, just, yeah. And uh, I'm looking over. You're about to, you pointed to a sign that says culture eats strategy for lunch. Right. So, yeah, where are you going with that? And, and, and that's basically it. I mean, you know, I think what you need to do is really you have to create a culture that really 
embodies all of these, you know, the, these these elements of your company, and that sure. it's not really, you know, you're, you're not working off of a, a project plan and you know and milestones. Not that those aren't important, but it really just becomes who you are, right? right? And that you're you're working as an organization, and everybody understands, you know, the direction we're going. But it becomes the litmus test for every decision. We start thinking about things the same way, and I think that that's really, you know, ult- the ultimate linchpin that you need to succeed is not just trying to get people to execute against a, a, a strategic plan or a business yeah, plan, yeah. but really making it, you know, really uh, about who they are, and you know, as young leaders in the company, you know, making them look at things the same way, and you yeah. know, making sure that every day it just becomes part of who we are and it's our culture and yeah. you know and, and you see that i mean if you were to come here you know on fridays we have what we call rally in the alley and um you know it's 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 all about just sharing you know what it is that we do talking to them about you know where we are in the progress but at the end of you know at the end of the meeting i, I you know i can't uh, i'll just say uh we all get together and we do a chant which is get S word done, you know what I mean? And, and it's our family friendly podcast. Yeah, bro, yeah, yeah, we're with yeah, you. Yeah, we're yeah. with so, you. Yeah, you know, and and but got to get the work done. But yeah. that's that's who we are, you know, and and that's what we're trying to create. We're not trying to create a company that is, you know, that it's a uh, it's about a strategy or it's it's, it's about you know a, a collection of you know kind of functional components. Yeah, it, it's really about you know creating a a, a group that we're different yeah. and um, you know we're. You know, we're, we're a tribe and we're all working together mm-hmm. and, you know, following the same principles to execute on that strategic plan. Yeah. It, and that, I think there's a there's definitely a balance. And I can see it here as I walk around, as I talk to people, as I listen to you, Ken. I mean, you have a balance. It's not all one or the other. I've been in I've been in meetings where it's all about the strategy. But you can see these people around the room are trying to they want to kill each other. I mean, there's a, there's something wrong. You know, right, I don't always sure. I'm not always in a position to know what it is, but you can see there's a culture problem. I've been in other companies that are so enamored with culture that they eschew strategy, and they're just all—it's all about hugs and fun and and love, which those are fine things. I like right. all three of those things, but the company's wallowing because they right. don't have a strategy. Sounds like you're trying to—you've you, done a good job balancing those. Well, two I things. think that you know you bring up a good point. I mean, you know, one of the other critical cornerstones I think is is you know certainly for any you know any leader in the company, young or somebody that's been, you know, more seasoned and been in the industry for a while, is making sure that people really understand, you know, how, how, how score is kept. What does success look like? You know, what does success look like? Yeah. And, you know, again, it's, it's part of, you know, getting people to really understand how do you create, you know, return on investment, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and understanding even, you know, the importance of, of latency of return so you can prioritize, you know, what you're doing so that you can kind of systematically you know, move through a project plan and make sure that you're getting the maximum amount of return in the, in the shortest amount of sure. time. And, you know, that, that is a very critical component because, you know, culture is, for me, you know, it's, it's, it's a means to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's part of the formula mm-hmm. that allows you to succeed, but success is, is really about, you know, creating return yeah. on investment for your shareholders. Yeah, and, if you don't uh, succeed, you're not here to have a culture tomorrow. That's I mean, right. it's, you know, it's like, that's right. It's not that it's all about the money. I mean, the money's important because without it, you can't run a company, uh, but you're accomplishing important things. And, uh, Ken, I'm just curious for listeners that, that you know, because we're all in this situation where we're employing, Folks were having to, like, you know, say people retire, people leave, I've got to replace them. 
how how do you approach or what is your approach to helping develop younger talent into you, you know because I'm listening to you say hey people come in we, we kind of rotate them train them you're not throwing them in the deep end on day one but they're jumping with a lot of responsibility but they must need some type of coaching they must need types some type of support what does that look like here um, we, we have a very active you know mentoring uh, program here and, and that comes in you know different forms I mean you know we try to to pair people up um, with, you know, individuals in the company that they feel that, you know, will help them develop and we move it around. You know, myself personally, um, I have lots of one-on-ones with, you know, different uh, individuals in the company, both people that have been here a long time as well as a lot of the sure. younger talent we brought in. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not just about, you know, bringing them in and talking to them about, you know, what's going on in your department or what's going on, you know, within your functional area, you know, what are the challenges you're seeing. It's really about, in some cases, taking a decision that was made in the company and breaking it down for them. And Almost like a debrief. A debrief and, and really trying to let them go inside my mind and understand, like, how decisions get made and, you know, all the different, how I look at it from different angles and how I seek input from different parts of the company and really, you know, try to look at things like the unintended consequences of things. Sometimes not just, you know, the, the direct uh, correlation to making a decision of one-on-one, but what are the unintended consequences? What are the relational aspects of, of a decision that, you know, might have an impact? And I think that's been really good because it really, you know, by, by spending the time with them and mentoring them more around leadership mm-hmm. and using, you know, very... Uh, concrete examples within the company that, you know, they might have been a part of or might be affecting them, it, it, it only increases the overall, you know, that, that culture. And they, you don't create that, that kind of, uh, you know, uh, the stratification that you see, you know, in a lot of companies where you, you know, you kind of have the, you know, the Ivy Hall and, you know, the Ivy Tower. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Ivy Hall in our case. Yeah. And, you know, they, they start really understanding like, okay, you know, I would have never expected that that was there was so much behind that particular decision. I just thought you made that decision because of this, right? Or you know, we made the decision this reason. And by taking the time and you know, kind of breaking away from unpacking it, unpacking it, and and really sharing with that, I think they find it very valuable. Sure. And you know, again, it kind of helps kind of lead to that overall cultural aspect of it. But they can start, you know, kind of learning, you know, just how you consider all the different facets mm. of a decision that has to be made and, you know, and, and trying to get to the best one. And a lot of times, you know, I'll be completely honest with them. I'll be like, there's no, there's no good outcome from <laughs> yeah. here. You know, I mean, yeah. there, there's no good outcome. I, I'm going to take. I had to plug my nose and make a decision. Yeah. yeah. You know, because I, I know no matter what decision I'm, I'm going to make, I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to make somebody unhappy. Right. And, um, you know, but, but really kind of, you know, you know, un, unpacking that for them yeah. and, you know, giving them insight. So I, I spend a lot of time with that. Um, you know, I think in this, this industry, um, you know, there's been a big shift. This was a very male dominated industry okay. for, you know, decades, generations, generations, yeah, yeah, yeah. centuries. And, you know, there's been a big shift in this industry. Um, you know, the, the majority of people are coming out of ex schools now are, are young women. Sure. And, you know, I see quite a mix here. At the yeah. Facility. And so, you know, we, we, you know, I, I realize that there are, there are nuances to being, you know, a young female leader, um, that, you know, I can sit there and talk with them, but they're, they're going to have a different experience. So we try to, you know, match them up with, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
you know, other young, uh, young women that, you know, have kind of come up through and have sure. reached a, a level of say vice president in the company. And we try to, ma- you know, match them up with mentors. And then in some cases, even, you know, some of the, you know, the members of my executive team, you know, I'll go out to the outside and try and find mentors for them outside of the company. So That's smart. Yeah. So again, I think it's all part of the culture of, you know, trying to, you know, not just tell them what to do, but, you know, really help them understand, you know, how we arrived at making that decision so that when they're forced to making that decision, they might, you know, hopefully look at it from all those different angles and understand the importance of, you know, yeah. that decision they might be making might be go well beyond the one particular, you know, area that they thought they were making a decision for. I was in a group for many years called Entrepreneurs Organization, oh, yeah. EO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in a forum, you know, back when I owned my agency and in one of the kind of tools they you know they refer to it as gestalt so i might say hey i've got this problem uh this never happened to me but the bank called my line of credit yeah i don't know what to do my hair is on fire and uh and listeners uh, know if they've ever seen me i don't have hair but um instead of a bunch of owners around a table saying mike here's what you should do they would say here's what i did in a similar situation right and that kind of unpacking their situation was because because what was great about that is we all, all of us, if you're leading a company, you're, you're, a, you're a go-getter. You're not a passenger. You're a driver. And you, we know what everybody else should do all the time. Right. <laughs> and we like to kind of cast a little bit of a spin. So I'm like, hey, Ken, here's what you ought to do. You know, I'm the expert. But when I tell you I did this and it actually blew up in my face, I can learn more from your failure than I oh. can from you giving me advice sometimes. Absolutely. So I really appreciate that approach when you're helping younger talent become more sophisticated, more mature, you're really, there's a generosity there of saying, I'm willing to be open with you. I want to share with you what was going through my mind. That's valuable. Well, I think, you know, you, you bring up a good point. It's, um, you know, as I mentioned before, we have rallies and generally the rallies have some type of a theme or a topic where, you know, I'm trying to share with people, you know, just, you know, my background, my, my yeah. views on things and, you know, trying to, you know, just hopefully. In part, it, right? Yeah, yeah. In, in part with them. And, you know, one of the things that I did very early on here was, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about the importance of being able to embrace failure. Yes. You know, and, and I shared with them some, yeah. you know, I, is, is, you know I've, had a, I've had a lot more failures in my life than I've had successes. And, <laughs> That's right. You know, the success that I've had have been largely driven from my failures, right? So, you know, I, I think that it's one thing to say it, but I think it's another thing to actually encourage people to make decisions that might result in failure. Now, obviously, you know, you got to be very, very careful about that. You don't want to, you know, have anybody make a decision. Be that reckless. Could have a, yeah. a real negative decision. You want to give them guidance along the way. But I think it is really important to, to really have a culture that embraces failure. Mm-hmm. And when you do fail, um, you know, have the humility to say, this is on me. Um, but here's what I learned from it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, I think that that's uh, that that's something again that is kind of an underpinning to a lot of successful companies is being able to say it's all right to fail. Yeah. And there's times where you know I'm sure you know a lot of people even listening to this have, have been in this this same position where they've got somebody reporting up to them or somebody work you know and they're, and they're adamant about a decision they want to make and you know you share with them like okay well here's my my experience here and here's kind of my you know my my uh, my input. But at the end of the day, you make the decision that you think is right. And, you know, that's all part of, you know, we're, we're really big here into 
empower, delegate, and hold accountable. Mm. And, you know, so with that, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to empower and, and delegate and hold accountable, you got to let them make their own decisions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know it's going to end in failure. But then it becomes, you know, the, you know, the cliche of a, of, of a teachable moment. Yeah. And, you know, again, you know, hopefully they'll impart that same knowledge on somebody else. Yeah. And, you know, over time, you know, we, we hopefully won't make that mistake again because they learned it from that failure. It's, and we allowed uh, them to fail. I think failure is important. And, as it, you know, I... When I ran my agency, I remember having this really just so bright young woman, so talented designer out of Alfred. And um, this this woman was just, young woman was just fantastic. First job out of college. This kid worked so hard. Her work was beautiful. It's like the ideal employee. So a job went to the printer one day and she messed up some of the files and didn't check her colors properly. And it was probably $1,500, $2,000 in printing costs, but it came back and it was wrong. Yeah, and she had to come to me, and she could hardly breathe. This poor girl. I mean, she was terrified. Like she's because this is one of those four kids. She never did anything. You know, everything was mm-hmm. perfect. But what I explained to her is, I said, "Look, uh, and I'm not going to say her name on the podcast, which is a lovely girl um, and woman, I should say now. But uh, this is years ago. I said, "Look, it's okay. Like the, honestly, you're such a hard worker. The fact that you failed in this, I'm confident you will never have a file that leaves this shop." wrong again. Right. So just if, from my perspective, consider this an investment. This 1500 bucks, it's an investment in you. Yeah. Now, if you keep coming back with files wrong, right, right. That's we're, a different we're having a different yeah. discussion. But I just knew this young woman was so driven and so smart that that failure actually was valuable. The rest of her career, whoever she works for, right. her files are going to be immaculate. But how else could she learn that right. unless we gave her the freedom to, to choke a little bit? You know, we I opened the kind of this piece of the discussion around what do you do to become a growth company? And we've really been focusing on the development of talent, finding the right people, empowering them, you know, giving them responsibility, holding them accountable. What, uh, what do you do? Because I'm hearing this and I'm thinking you're developing a team that people would love to have working for them. How do you retain? Because talent acquisition and talent development, critical, but you've got to retain that talent. Uh, that's a great question. I think, and it's something that, you know, I, I'm sure you hear over and over, it's always a, a concern. I think there's a couple of things. I mean, number one, um, uh, you know, it, it does come down to the culture. And, you know, one of the, the great quotes that I like to reference when it comes to this is the Richard Branson quote of, you know, um, train them to leave, treat them to stay. Okay. Yep. And, you know, and it, but I, when I say treat them to stay, I think, you know, what you really have to do is, by making it something that's cultural, you also, you know, basically create your own value proposition for their involvement in the company. And, you know, money is a part of that, yeah. that equation. But at the end of the day, people want to be part of a, of a success story. People want to be part of a movement. Right. And, and I think that's where culture becomes so important that if you're successful in doing that and you're actually able to create that culture, it skews the value proposition away from just being, you know, somebody that's functional and, you know, succeeding or failing or developing in their functional role to somebody that's actually part of something bigger. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it, you know, within that context, even from the employee's perspective, the reality is that the time that they'll spend here and participating in something that is successful and recognized as a big success will only make them more valuable in the future, mm-hmm. you know, um, so again, I mean, you know, we what we want to do is try to create a situation where people are really feeling like they're part mm. of this overall story, 
And if they were to leave and just keep it down to, you know, here's my functional role and this is how much I can get down the street, you're always going to have people kind of moving in and out. Yeah. And, you know, this industry is not uh, an industry where, you know, you know, money's just dripping, uh, you know, everywhere. And, you know, it's a very, very mature industry. I like to say it's the second oldest industry. Okay. Um, you know, it's food Which means the margins food, have yeah. to be pretty tight. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, so you, you really have to do things, you know, ultimately do things faster, better, cheaper. But if By you, the way, that second oldest industry just caught up to me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> people I'm have slow to, on the uptake. There's two things that people have to do, yeah, right? You know, yeah. so to, one to, of them is eat. One of them is eat, right? <laughs> so if you want to perpetuate humanity. Yeah. You know, there's only a few things. That yeah. You know, so this this is certainly the seed industry is a very sure, old industry. Sure. Sure. So you know, it is it's, it, it, as a mature industry. You know, it's not an industry where, you know, um, you know, it's not a, a greenfield industry where you're going to have yeah. just it's not blue ocean. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is not. So you know, in order to succeed, you know, you really have to make people part of a, a bigger story, and that also means letting them be, you know. A, a contributing author mm-hmm. to that story. To that story. Yeah, so, you know, that's not to say you don't have people leave or you're not going to, you know, it's going to be foolproof. That's healthy. You want But But I think, you know, that. it really does come down to, you know, trying to make sure that they're looking at a, a, full, a full 360 view of their particular opportunity at this company and try to get them to focus on the longer-term objective of their careers and, you know, let them know that there's a lot of intrinsic value to them being part of this story mm. and that, you know, ultimately that will open up doors for them for decades to come, mm. much more than what they could get just by trying to succeed in a particular functional role and, you know, moving from company to company to company. Mm. Ken, you know, as a last question, um, I know you've been at the helm for three years. It's not a long time for a business. There's a lot, you know, you're already alluding to some of the hard work that, that has to happen when any leader takes the reins and a company's trying to pivot a little bit and and, and uh, get ready for the future. What are you most proud of? As a kind of a closing question, I'm just curious. Over the last three years, what are you most proud of? Um, well, I mean, obviously, you know, I'll, I'll kind of I'll, I'll start with the end result and then I'll kind of work back to sure the, kind of the means to that end. Um, because if I were to just give the end result, it really wouldn't give credit to you know, how it actually took place. And we've really been able to outperform the industry in, in a pretty significant way. Um, you know, this is an industry that is largely, um, you know, constricting. Um, you know, you've got a lot of farmers and a lot of growers that, you know, they don't have succession. And you've got a lot of urban sprawl and suburban sprawl that is, you know, taking up farmland. So you find yourself maybe in a place where you've got a lot of uh, companies fighting for, you know, e- either maintaining their piece of a, of a shrinking pie or hopefully, you know, gaining more market share within a shrinking pie. And we've been very successful at doing that. You know, we've increased volume by, you know, 40% um, in the three years that we've been here. So for a company that's been around for, you know, the length of time that this company has been around, I think that that's, a, that's quite an achievement. But at the end of the day, the only way we're able to do that is because of all the things we've been talking about. You know, we built an exceptional team, um, you know, very talented. We're, we're still working out the kinks um, and we have a ways to go, but, you know, we're accepting of that. And, you know, we know we're going to get it right over time. So it's, it's really, um, it's just the beginning for us. Um, this company is going to be a force. And, you know, we, we hope that, you know, going forward, when you bring up Harris Seeds, you know, certainly within, you 
um, you know, the, the customer side of the business with the growers, uh, but also with the supplier, they're going to look at, the, at our company as really being the benchmark and, you know, the company that's reinventing uh, the industry. So I'm very proud of that and I'm, I'm proud of the progress we're making uh, towards, uh, you know, achieving that objective. My guest today is Ken Wozniak. He's the president and CEO of Garden Trends Incorporated, which also owns Harris Seeds and a number of other companies in the ag space. Ken, thank you so much for being on The Currency. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. It's been a fantastic conversation. Folks, make sure you check out this company. I'm going to direct you to the Harris Seeds website, although as I as I mentioned, Garden Trends owns more than that brand. But go to harrisseeds.com. I'll put a link in the description. Look at the company. Check them out on LinkedIn. They're just doing some really interesting things. And uh, even if you're a home gardener, you know, check out the product you can buy and and try them out. But uh, check out this company that is transitioning from being a heritage brand to a growth oriented company. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. I talk to fascinating people like Ken on a weekly basis. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Google Podcasts, anywhere that fine podcasts are provided. Guys, I love you all and I'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you.